Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. In this episode, I interview a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Romy Swanson. Romy is the Director of Conservation at Audubon, Texas. He's had a really cool career as a wildlife biologist. Um, he's worked for land trusts and he's done um, a lot of wildlife tax valuation. Um, he's, he's done a lot of cool stuff. Um, we discuss uh, various conservation topics, um, especially when it comes to private land ownership and, and issues uh, relevant to Texas, um, like our growing population and you know how that's going to affect wildlife resources. Um, we discuss um, the nuances of climate change and really try to, uh, you know, depoliticize it and just kind of treat it as a, as a, um, you know, a, the scientific um, and, and conservation issue that it is. Um, so we cover some of that. Um, we talk about his uh, herping big year that he just did in 2021. Um, he had a lot of good stories associated with that. And, um, and that's actually how we met. We were out, um, herping in the same area and we ended up in the same wetland looking for the same frog, uh, which was kind of cool to recall that, um, all around a really good episode. It's a little long, but I think you guys will, will enjoy it. Um, at one part we do discuss our, our, um, our shared, uh, stomach problems that, um, ha has really hindered our, our, our careers in wildlife. Um, we both have a, um, a, a lot of problems with, um, with our stomachs and he, he actually has is diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So, um, we kind of discuss some of that and how we've dealt with it. And, you know, if you're not interested in that kind of thing, I think it starts at about an hour and 20 minutes. Um, that's when it, we kind of start talking about that. And it, we talked for about 10 minutes on that topic. Um, so, um, not, not the, uh, the usual topic for, for this podcast, but it's something that we share and, um, it has affected us in our wildlife careers. So it was kind of nice for, for us to kind of discuss it a little bit. Um, and, you know, maybe some of you guys out there will, um, have a similar experience. Um, uh, but yeah, overall it was a really good, really good episode. Um, Romy's an awesome dude, really look up to him and uh, I think you guys will enjoy it. Um, so now I bring you Romy Swanson. All right. I'm here with Romy Swanson. Great to have you here, brother. I'm really glad to be here, man. A uh, fan of, of, of the work you're doing on all of your um, mediums, man, yeah. whether podcasts, socials, or just hanging out in the field. Yeah, man. We got to, uh, before we go into your stuff, we got to talk about how we met. We got, we had a very unique meeting. <laughs> Well, I mean, there, there was like, there was two times that we met. I mean, I, I don't remember the original digital meeting, but at some point we, we kind of synchronized on, on the socials. I don't know if it was Facebook or Instagram. And that was, that was it. I mean, we know, we knew each other for a while Yeah, through that, through, through Instagram at least. And then that, that, uh, star crossed meeting in South <laughs> Texas was, uh, so random and, and, and so welcomed. Yeah. We were both chasing that Mexican burrowing toad. Ended up in the same wetland in the middle of South Texas. Right. I, man, Andrew, I think about this all the time. I was talking about this, like, um, with some of this work that, that we do, especially with, like, 
wanting to see critters um, and, and chasing specific species, like it, it is so, it's such, it's such interesting because your path and that animal's path sort of converge at a point in space at a particular time. And if you really think about it, that's kind of awesome. And then to have that scenario, plus meeting somebody that, that you admire and, and who you follow on social media, who you haven't met in person, to have those all, all three happen at the same time, that was pretty cool, especially with that particular species where you are range restricted, you're, you're like, you know, meteorologically restricted, um, timing restricted. It, it all sort of played out, but it was, it was a welcome night, man. It was, yeah. it was one that I, that whenever I write my top five for my blog about this big year that I did last year, that's going to be one of the big stories. Yeah. Um, if not number one, number two, it's, it's going to be one of them. So I remember showing up to the wetland and I, I saw a couple of lights shining. We're, we were there to meet Clint. I guess it wasn't totally random because I guess you probably were right behind Clint as well. But uh, I heard your voice and I was like, is that you, Romy? Because <laughs> <laughs> it sounded like, yeah, I'd never met you in person, but yeah, that was, and then we really capitalized on it later on in the night. Yeah. I finally got I, that, that round of friends. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was, I was there that night um, on on a so that was one of Gilbert's um, Gilbert Martinez's um, uh, study sites for his master's thesis project studying white-lipped frogs in South Texas and Gilbert had given me some good notes on some couple of places to maybe check out but this this spot in particular because I was also looking for white-lipped frogs and um, and so I was just kind of like hanging out on, on the, on the road there. And then I, and then, you know, Clint drives a really distinct vehicle that is recognizable. So he shows up and I'm like, Hey, Hey buddy, it's, it's me. It's, it's you. Okay, cool. And then we start, um, you know, Clint, I think had either permission or, or had kind of wandered over to one of Gilbert's um, monitors. And so I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to follow you and, we found a sheep frog along the way. We could hear those stinking white lip frog. We couldn't find one. We worked for a while. And about 30 minutes later, you showed up. And I was like, man, it's going to be a cool night. Yeah. It's just going to be a cool night. Yeah. It was me and my friend, my friend, my good friend, Kendall. Uh, that was a heck of an experience for her. She hadn't really gone down to South Texas. And so that was a heck of a first trip to South Texas for somebody. Yeah. Y'all rocketed down from College Station. Yeah, man. I looked at that, at that rainfall map and I was like, this is it. If this is, if I'm going to get one this year, I better hit it now. Got six inches of rain or something like that. And uh, yeah, one little area. It was um, for me, I was at, I was working at one of um, Audubon's uh, Audubon, Texas, whom I worked for one of Audubon, Texas sanctuaries down at Sable Palm near Brownsville. Same scenario. I was like two and a half inches is just enough rain to maybe get these animals up. Yeah. And um exact same train of thought two hours drive from where I was to, to hit the to hit the spot where we met but it was like you can't miss it you're you're this close it's it's way better than a six hour drive which which is which, what you guys did or even more um, for me and I said I just can't miss it. I don't care and we didn't stay so house what till 1 2 o'clock in the morning we were out late before, before driving back to wherever we were staying which I think we're both kind of back towards Brownsville yeah two hours away yeah man that was a that was an awesome night. Uh, tell us how you got started in your career, man. Sure. Let's get on that. Yeah, part. that's, uh, that's going to be the exciting part for people to listen to because you've had a really cool career. Man, I, I I call it a career of just being very fortunate, bumbling. Like I, 
you know, you do it too. You just kind of stumble in to relationships and opportunities. You don't say no. And, and, and when these, when you have that sort of personality and certain skill sets that like these crossroads again, meet and, and then you get to have, you get to maybe, you know, have a position that's, that becomes vocational um, as, as opposed to just, you know, a paycheck, you know, week to uh, every other week or whatever. But my, my career arc um, really started in undergraduate. I was, um, you know, kind of bumbling through my undergraduate degree, um, not doing incredibly well. I was kind of focused on kinesiology and chemistry early and um, found out about uh, like wildlife, wildlife management as a potential career and a degree plan by um, simply looking at a flyer in, in the science hall at Texas State University in San Marcos, where I went to school. And it says a lot, the student chapter, Texas, the Texas State University student chapter of the Wildlife Society presents uh, live animals and free pizza to anybody interested. And I said, I like both of those things. <laughs> um, and I wrote about this um, a while back when I, when I um, was uh, coming in as the, the elected president of our, of our biggest uh, wildlife management trade society in Texas, the, the Texas chapter of the Wildlife Society, that it was like a spark moment realizing that you can make a career and a, de a degree tracked out of this. Because again, I was just kind of like not doing great. I had actually quit college a couple of times at this point. And then I find out like, gosh, all these things I loved about childhood, unstructured nature play, being outside, <laughs> flipping rocks and creeks. Like you can, you can do this as a right. career. Holy cow. I mean, but now, now the, the big caveat there is that you can do this, but you, there's a, there's definitely a very low ceiling and you're like earning potential and all right. those sorts of things. And lots of, there's a lot of us out there. So like positions are challenging, uh, cracking the even like early career entry level positions are real challenges. Didn't know that at the time. And um, so anyway, changed my degree like immediately yeah. and started going through courses that captivated my attention and all of it was brand new. Like you and I have a lot of uh, similarities and like we grew up um, at least in periods of our life where all of our, all of our like wildlife education was just like from, you know, uncle, whoever, and our, our own flipping of rocks. And then you go to a formal degree plan and it's like hunting and fishing too, you know? Yeah. Herping. Very, so I didn't grow up hunting or fishing. So that was sort of new, new okay. for me as in like, I just started that about 10 years ago, but <clears throat> you know, I, I, again, I lived by a Creek and my, my parents were like, go have fun. I mean, I, we didn't have neighbors. So it's like a, you know, nobody was really worried about things. Uh, up North, then. right? Yeah. I grew up in West Virginia. I was born there. I lived there until I was 11. We moved to Texas when I was 12. <clears throat> and I grew hey, up. Thank God you came here, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I like to say like I got here as quickly as I could, and I've been here for almost thirty years now. So I'm naturalized. I've spent three quarters of my life here. I'm, I'm very much a naturalized citizen. And typically, when somebody says, "You know, I can't quite place your accent. What part of Texas are you from?" It's never, "Are you from up north?" Um, so I always thought that that was pretty cool. I feel like okay, I'm adopted. They just like you know, they think I'm from like. North, North Dallas, or maybe the Panhandle, or something—I don't know. Yeah. Um, but that was that was the big spark moment in, in kind of like the in getting me towards this career. I I did I I wrapped up my undergraduate 
did very, you know, I did very well compared to how I was doing beforehand. And I started to get into the leadership of the student chapter of the Wildlife Society, the same organization that kind of, you know, got me into this. Yeah. That was and a big, went, big part of it was the Wildlife Society for you. It sounds yeah, like. for me, that, that was, that was huge. And that's, that's why to this day, I still spend a lot of time you know, volunteering and, and participating within the, within the organization. I really believe in a lot of the good things that they do. And then I, I graduated in August of 2007, did a quick trip to Japan because I was seeing, seeing a, a, a woman that was an international student and she had just grad, you know, finished up school. And so I went back with her for a, a cool trip to Japan during that winter and then straight into a master's degree also at Texas state university. See, I was also a, a, a young parent at the time, uh, single, uh, was never married, but had a, had a son. And at this time, just a couple of years old. So I had a really great support system yeah. for being able to go to school, have a, have, be a father, um, you know, half the time he and he and, um, or his mother and I kind of shared custody. And, um, and so, you know, instead of kind of doing the traditional jump to a different university to do that next level degree. I, I stayed at Texas State University, yeah. wrapped up a, a degree in two and a half semesters, uh, studying reptiles, amphibians, and, yeah. and mammals at uh, the wetlands in Central Texas near Palmetto State Park. Yeah. Yeah. And when I was fin uh, a year left in my master's degree, I started um, working as a technician at a wildlife management consulting group called Plateau Land and Wildlife. They're well known for um, work that they do with private landowners and maintaining property tax valuations for yep. wildlife management valuation. So um, that's my, that was my entry point. So I just went from tech to, yep. you know, you know, got, got done with my degree, went, started to work for Plateau full time and worked for them for almost a total of eight years, working my way up to a senior biologist position overseeing like 18 counties in South, South, Southern Edwards Plateau or Hill Country region before um, making a switch over to land trust um, working for Hill Country Conservancy here in Austin and uh, kind of a short tenure there, two and a half years before I was poached by the National Audubon Society to serve as the state director of conservation for Texas, yeah. which is where I work now and have worked for a little over three years. Very good, man. That's the, that's the arc. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a yeah. lot of nuance in there. And we can dig into <laughs> yeah, that sort so of what, later. The first uh, big job you had you talked about the tax valuation stuff. So that you can kind of explain that, but it's an incentive to get landowners to manage their, their private land for wildlife, which is so important these days, yeah. especially in Texas. I think, I think of it as, um, so, you know, in the nineties, um, the legislator was the legislature, Texas legislature was thinking about these issues, grappling that, uh, you know, the rural landowner, we're seeing even at that time, which today it would be nothing, but even at that time, land values peripheral to our particular peripheral to our metropolitan areas were, were starting to go up so much. And at that time, there was no real favorable tax valuation. Um, so they created a, a special tax valuation so that to incentivize landowners and those working lands adjacent to these metropolitan areas to be able to keep their properties intact, at least that they didn't have to sell land to pay tax, property tax um, expenses every year. And so there's traditional agriculture where you can just, you know, you could produce um, cattle and you know, leather and beef products or sheep or whatever. And, and the idea is that instead of being taxed 
every year on the value on a percentage of the value of the land relative to what you could sell it on the open market, you are taxed on what that land can produce through agriculture. And that can, and, and agriculture also includes like in East Texas timber valuations and, or in the hill country, like around Fredericksburg, like vineyards and stuff or honey, whatever, whatever that product is. And um, so the legislature decided like, hey, you know what, we should do this um, because 95, 96, 97, everybody argues what that percentage is, but it's a significant percentage of the state is privately owned. And we put the burden of wildlife management and, and wildlife stewardship on the backs of private landowners without really providing them an incredible amount of tools or incentives to do that good work. Let's extend this special valuation to those landowners that are managing for the benefit of wildlife. And that might be deer, yeah. maybe turkey, like traditional game animals, but also it could be golden cheek warblers or a particular species of wasp. Like there's a lot of freedom in deciding what it is you want to manage for. And um, so they just said, okay, hey, you know, you could produce, you would be taxed on these products if you're running cattle. We'll give you the same, you know, tax valuation just doing wildlife management. And here's a certain number of criteria. They have, you know, seven different categories of management activities. And we just need you to do one activity in, in at least three out of these seven categories. And if you do that faithfully, meeting certain minimum thresholds, usually identified by Texas Parks and Wildlife you're going to, you're going to, your incentive is you get the special tax valuation. Yeah. Hopefully that trade is you invest your savings into good stewardship and management practices. And, um, and the state doesn't see it as a, as a significant hurdle because most of the times these, these lands are, uh, that are managed in open space, aren't receiving incredible amounts of services or, or, or goods from the, um, from the uh, counties, yeah, you know, if, 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 just think about it. Like, what are they really getting as a county service? There's not like emergency, a lot of emergency service on the property. Yeah. Um, so it's actually not a bad investment if you think about the return on like for every. So for instance, I really love this stat, and I don't know the very specific numbers, but the general numbers are for every dollar that one of these landowners that I'm talking about that receives this special tax valuation pays they're only receiving like 70 cents of services back from the county. Whereas in a neighborhood that is dense, like the one I live in for every dollar that I pay in, in property taxes, which is still a lot because I have a lot of value in this home, in this lot in this, in, in South Austin, I I'm receiving like a dollar and 24 cents back in, in yeah. public goods and services. So yeah. in a lot of ways, and this is an argument that, that, the appraisal districts don't really get or buy sometimes, but the analysis, you know, the data is there disputed with other data. If you, if you want to just don't dismiss it is that the, the wild lands out there that are receiving a special tax valuation are actually supplementing yeah. um, us here in the neighborhoods. Yeah. Makes sense. When, when you look at the, the true costs of some of the services that we receive. Yeah. T tell me this, I guess most landowners were going to go with the game species like around central Texas, white-tailed deer and stuff. I, no, in, in Central Texas, I don't think so. I think yeah. in Central Texas, you see that model flipped, um, okay. particularly on the Edwards Plateau. You, I think you see a lot more non-game uh, management. Now, that may be, it may still be proportionally more, like 55% game versus 45% non-game, but That's good, relative though. to the other yeah. eco-regions, yeah. I think the Edwards Plateau probably has way more land managed to, that specifically calls out non-game animals than, than yeah. traditional hunted um, species 
Yeah. And so this is better. Larger, larger ranches, though. Larger ranches, yes, because it's just easier. Yeah, I got you. It's just easier. And larger ranches, I mean thousands of acres. So it's been around for about two decades now. And I guess yeah. it's overall, overall very successful, you know, on a landscape scale. I think so. Um, it, it, it has its pluses and its minuses, and we can, we can dig into that a little bit too. Um, but I think it is, a, it is one of the truly Texan tools that we provide in it so that it works for Texans. Um, it's special. It, it's sort of unique across the United States. Okay, that's interesting. Um, and so within, even within Audubon, so you know, the National Audubon Society is a huge organization. Texas is just one of many states that has a chapter, or not a chapter, but a division. And um, you know, I brought this up in some of the discussions with my colleagues across the country, and they're like, "Whoa, this is, this is so interesting. This is yeah. so novel. Like, yeah. you know, how can we replicate this?" And um, and so, you know, I don't think we do enough with it. Yeah. And I and I don't think it's centralized very well from the comptroller's office. I don't want to criticize yeah, the yeah. comptroller's office, but they really allow 254 different divisions underneath them to kind of interpret and, and operate this, this incentive the way that they see without kind of like really coalescing away. And, yeah. and so you can find a lot of differentiation and a lot of that is not necessarily legally yeah, yeah. Uh, legal differentiation um, between county to county. What's your, when you go to approach a, a landowner or I guess, do you, do you have like a pitch, you know, like you got something that to encourage and, landowners, how, how does that work? You know, it, I don't have a pitch. Wow. You know, when we did this work, obviously we worked for a business. They were doing yeah, marketing yeah. and stuff, but, um, but it's really funny. I, I, I kept up with a few landowners and, and still take care of a couple of properties, um, whether it's writing updated management plans and helping them document their activities year to year. So that because every year, lots of counties require you to report what you did. Yeah. So in the beginning, you write a management plan that says, this is what I, what I plan to do. And with these activities, I will qualify. They give you the blessing and then they check up on you year after year. And so you self-report and then you report afterwards telling them what I actually did. Um, but I, I found um, I've maintained you know, a handful of relationships with landowners throughout the years and through word of mouth and referrals, even though I do not have time for a lot of this. And at one point I did it because it helped make ends meet. You know, uh, yeah. I talked earlier about biologists don't necessarily make big paychecks. And, yeah, right. So sometimes you do a little side hustling to, um, you know, if you want to get your piece of equipment or whatever, yeah. you do a little side hustling. And this is something that my wife and I were doing yeah. um, to kind of make the ends meet. But now we're like, you know, we're at points in our careers where, where we don't necessarily need to work. And I'd actually like to sleep and rest and do the do things I want. But I, I maintain a lot of relationships that I've had for a long time. But I'm still getting calls, you know, yeah. referrals to do good work. You know, you're interesting. And I'm more I'm more aligned with your thinking where I want to do long long-term thinking conservation, but I do want to receive my tax valuation. Yeah, yeah. So it's becoming more and more known. I think new landowners are, are the ones that are really interested in it. Um, so people that have, you know, worked and made, made their nut, bought some property and they're like, well, I, I really got to do something to keep these taxes down. Yeah. And I'm not really interested in, in bringing livestock with some of the liabilities associated with it. And maybe, you know, and, and antithesis to what my hope is of yeah, yeah. restoring, you know, diverse yeah. grasslands with you know, beautiful stands of big and little blue stem or whatever. And you hope that a lot of these landowners do have some conservation ethics and they really are interested in, uh, 
and the wildlife too, you know? Yeah. And I've worked with case. both sides of that. Yeah. Um, when I worked for Plateau, we certainly had plenty of clients that were, you know, even developers that were just sitting on property, you know, trying to wait oh, uh, and man, defer the date until when they were going to have to pay their dues. And, and I don't, good. I don't, I hated it. I mean, I had like, you know, coming out of college is naive. I'm going to save the world, you know. Oh, yeah. I'm still in everything. that phase. I'm still in that phase right now. <laughs> yeah, you are. And, and you, you, you probably, um, I don't want everyone to say like you mature through it because that's not the appropriate word, but you, but you, because you start to have a more mature understanding of how the world works. Yeah. And, and like, and, and then you and I will gravitate towards those people that like want to work the way that we want to work and want to yeah. work with them. <clears throat> that makes sense. While also kind of still being hurt. <laughs> by watching that other side. Yeah. Um, but it is, um, you know, it, it's a challenge because we, we were, I don't know, man, we, so many of my friends, I've even watched come out of college that were like true, true conservations. I'm going to save the world. And the reality is um, the, sometimes the world just can't be saved. So we got to right. save the version of the world that is most workable and right. put our efforts towards it. All right. If anything, it keeps me sane, a living a life that is striving to be, you know, very, very pro conservation and everything that I do yeah. and everything that I think yeah. about is it's kind of weird. I guess you probably experienced the same thing, but I often don't think about much else than my life. I probably need to be more well-rounded, but it's like, if you work as a biologist and me and you are very dedicated naturalists as well, um, we're going to get into that. So like everything we do is just wildlife. Yeah. It's awesome. It, it never gets old. <laughs> I, I I have to admit that I've been guilty because, um, you know, as your friend group, it, it, it expands. And, and a lot of those people are filled by similar thinking, similar interested folks, but you will acquire a couple of friendships that are not in the wildlife world for whatever reason, you just spark. Yeah. And, uh, and they're, they're sitting there watching you talk to your other friends and they're like, yeah. you know, drooling on themselves, trying not to fall asleep, eyes rolling in the back <laughs> of their head. Like, I love it. I'll, I'll hang out with y'all for, you know, 45 minutes of talking about wildlife. It's great. I cannot do this six hour marathon right. session, but what there's the... things I've picked up from those people, man. They yeah. may be business people, they may be bankers. And I learned all sorts of interesting things about finance and like, yeah. you know, conservation finance is a thing. Like, no, you know, for sure. How, how can I be exposed to an element of the world and the way the world works that I don't understand that isn't traditionally, you know, in, in this circle and, and maybe take those lessons learned and apply them. And, and I think we've seen some amazing examples of conservation that have emerged because of that, like, yeah, you know, that expanding circle, I think of it as um, some of the best conservationists out there are, are like, multidisciplinary like yeah. know the way the world works and apply models that have never been tested in our in our you know in our world we really it kind of reminds me we we really need to try harder like we as in conservationists to really can like um like nor i don't want to say normalize yeah really just normalize conservation ethic because like um my whole life i've always felt kind of unique and special because i had this um, people just treat me as different and I always like embrace that, but as I've gotten older, I've, I've realized there's a lot of value and, and, um, not really soaking that in, but, you know, trying to pull more people into thinking about conservation, not, you know, like not thinking it's so like some weird thing, like it's very relevant to, to everybody's yeah. life. 
I don't know. It may not make uh, sense, but <laughs> no, it, it does. And, and I'll, I'll use one of the things I admire about you so much is um, you got a pretty good social media presence and a, and a pretty robust following relative to like normal people. And um, and I know for a fact that like people, some of the people, a subset of the people that follow you are, are like just totally naive to conservation, totally naive to wildlife. I know you got some straight up ballers that also follow you, too, and that you follow um, but those that that first group I'm talking about, like your messaging, your stories that you share, um, your your information, like you don't you may not get it because these are people that are just kind of watching and observing you. But you're, you're sharing and your ethics, which are so um, resonant to to the way that we us, our community yeah. wishes the world worked. And they're and they're becoming like inching. It may only be inching, but that inching is so so important. They're they're inching closer to a conservation ethic, yeah. or at least understanding and appreciating it. Yeah. And I and I think that's like the world that we're living in right now. We have such great communicators, and and they're receiving these these uh, platforms um, through these non you know I say non traditional communication mediums. Yeah. And I'm just blown away. Even I've got a much smaller following uh, than you do, but um, I get messages every once in a while that just blow me away with like, man, somebody I ain't talked to in like eight years and they message me and say, hey, dude, I was about to kill this hog nose up in my yard, but I found out those ain't even poisonous yeah, right. or whatever, you know, like, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm like just sitting in my bed, like, yeah, my work's done for the day, you know? Yeah. Um, I think that, just kind of continuing to share, share the message. Uh, we can't get off uh, of the hymn and, yeah. and, you know, hopefully it just res the message resonates someday with somebody, but yeah. we're going to expose ourselves to enough people at some point. We're going right. to be so easily accessible that this, this idea, this ethic is, is going to be hard to not be aware of. Yeah. It does seem like we're moving in the right direction on a, on a societal level, you know, yeah. It does seem like it. It's but a lot of things seem a certain way and it's not the case, but it does seem like we're heading in the right direction. Um, but I'm just a, a natural optimist. Although yeah. conservation can make you a little little bit uh pessimistic at times, but yeah, well there's a lot of good plenty, stuff happening. There's plenty to be pessimistic about. I mean, you and I, um, you know, and all of our friends and peers, and I love that the, the Leopold quote, you know, we're we're running across a landscape that through our training, we see as a diseased and scarred landscape, whereas everybody else just thinks of it as, no, this is, this is a beautiful, beautiful range. Wow. <laughs> Look at all that KR in that field and all these invasive blue stems and, and whatever else. But like, um, it, it's hard for us because we, we are, you know, we're well informed, very, fairly well informed and we can see these issues, but just because it ain't like a perfect picture or image of, of what it once was, it doesn't mean that it can't be a functional, beautiful landscape and ecology. It's just yeah. that, you know, we have to acknowledge that the fingerprint of humans are all, all over the place. Yeah. The damage in a lot of ways is already done. And our job is, you know, I always think of conservation biology as three jobs. It's, it's you know, to preserve that which is intact, to restore that which abuts and can be restored and to study the shit out of, everything that we can and try to understand it. Right. And like, if we just do those three things, we're doing, we're doing the job of conservation biology. Yeah, man. Did you see that, uh, talking about restoring, uh, or conserving what's intact that 5,000 acres of Columbia bottomlands bought up by the U S fish and wildlife service. 
that just blows my mind that a 5,000 acre tract of old growth in Southeast Texas was just conserved. That just, that's awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, these, these are the, these are the things, these events are the ones that we, we absolutely as, as easy to be pessimist types of people, these are the ones that we got to really stop and celebrate. Like, and I, and I don't mean like a one, a one night celebration. I mean, like, that's a big win. That's a huge There's not a lot of examples of that around, yeah. you know, and for Texas in general, that's like for recent times, that's really cool. But being in the Houston area, you see the urban sprawl happening so fast. Mm. And I, I just have this anxiety about it. I, I mean, I don't ent- entertain those negative thoughts, but like the Columbia bottomlands is just right there on the Southwestern edge of Houston. And that, that area is growing so fast. So when you get 5,000 acres of, of old growth, you know, bottomline hardwoods bought up like that, man, it just feels really good. <laughs> it does. Really good. I, I'm, I'm, you know, you know, I've never been involved directly with any of that work. And I know that like some of my favorite organizations, like 10 Texas land conservancy and nature conservancy and some, and some others, the U S fish and wildlife service, they're doing a lot of this good work on behalf of, of this, you know, critically important, super interesting, intact um, ecosystem. But I, I go back to, to where I grew up after moving to Texas, which is back in Matagorda County, Colorado river splits us in that county and, and look at the way that whatever was there as far as bottomlands was, you know, at some point pushed all the way back to basically the banks of the river. Um, And, and you see, you know, what was probably once, if I remember correct, described as like a mile wide bottomland, you know, on both sides of the channel to, to nothing, to just sheer cliff overlooking, you know, grazed lands and and pushed back for farming and, and ranching. And um, I'm just like, it, it creates a pit in your stomach. And I was like, man, this is my home country. And at one point it was so different than what it once was. And there's still little, you know, re- little relics, little yeah. relic tracks of woodlands, old growth woodlands along the way, but not on a scale similar to those Columbia bottomlands. Um, so it, it really is, an incredible conservation win to see more and more tracks continuing to be preserved in that, yeah. in that country. So important right now, especially um, I've seen some of the projections, like the population of Texas doubling by 2050. And that's just mind blowing. Yeah. We're, so we're like, like I, I, we're either at or creeping at 30 million people in Texas. And I know when that fact came out, we we're closer to like 25 and we're, and we're looking at 50 or 55, whenever that doubles. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we're already like, we're already experiencing, experiencing some incredible like pressures associated with our population, population growth just recently. We haven't necessarily addressed that. Look at groundwater issues, yeah. like namely. And, um, and now we're going to tuck in, you know, 20, 20 million more people in, and it's not like evenly distributed across Texas. We're talking about a triangle between Dallas, Fort Worth, San Antonio, Austin, and Houston. Like that's where, I don't know, like something like 90% of all this growth is going to occur. So, so, you know, there's so many weird things going on here. Like the rift between urban and rural, you know, that's going to become bigger. Um, and these bigger municipalities associated with those four metropolitans are, are like going to be taxing resources like no other, particularly directly adjacent to them and particularly around groundwater, surface water. Um, it's unending and it's, yeah. it's nerve wracking 
And this, I think there has been some wisdom and leadership to try to acknowledge it's happening, plan for it. Like there's some pretty novel stuff in the Texas water plan. Yep. Um, but there's also like some, there's some extreme optimism, like, Oh, we're going to, we're going to like, you know, we're going to be able to absorb these many people by like some water saves. Like everybody's going to like turn the spigot off and they brush their teeth. Like, yeah. okay. You can only save so much water. And all, by the way, 25 million people also need to be employed. Those employed are going to be working where again, factories, industries, you know, agriculture is going to be probably main, you know, steady. I would assume yeah. might find some water savings in, in their uses, but industry, municipalities, it's, it's how do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, how do you view Texas in 50 years from now? What, what is, what is the landscape like in your head? Well, um, we've got, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, I, I think that, I, I think that we'll be in, in decent shape. I think yeah. we're, we're, we're going to have a lot more people. We're going to see that um, where our state does it today want to lead on on conservation issues and natural resource issues in particular our municipalities that are experiencing this growth will they'll take up that mantle i'm i'm i am somewhat amazed that then not that um there is so much cutting edge leadership in conservation issues particularly around climate change and climate and carbon sequestration savings and stuff. Um, look at like the work that san antonio has done in preserving their groundwater assets by using tax money to buy land to preserve aquifer recharge west of the of the city so um i'm really interested to see how our uh, municipalities continue to lead and then we are forcing in many cases the state to follow we're kind of dragging the state kicking and screaming um but also even if we look in the oil and gas sectors um, industry is acknowledging because they're not, they're not in the business of like making money for a decade and then going bankrupt. They're in the business of sustainability, just like we are. Yeah. Right. So when their business models are based on some, some form of natural resources, or if their business model is to be around in 50 years and they're a carbon based, you know, a carbon based industry, you know, how do they diversify so that they're relevant in 50 years? Well, you see a lot of really interesting things happening and, and, yeah. and I'm inspired by that. Yeah, It is, it is the example of, of a conservative state wants to point out that capitalism can be a part of the solution and they certainly yeah. are. Yeah. Um, I think that the state is, you know, kind of hamstrings itself a bit because it won't even take kind of practical, reasonable steps to kind of course correct on, you know, maybe some regulation. I'm not saying like aggressive regulation, but some regulation, some taxation, like, Hey, you guys are, you know, sullying water, you're sullying air. Like, why don't you all pay to mitigate that a little bit better? A lot of the tools that force that occur from the feds. Right. And that's a four letter word in the state. Climate change is, um, it's a bad word for a lot of people, you know, and a lot of people don't like it. Um, you know, I just, I, I learned about it in school and, and it's just a very basic scientific concept in my head, but it, it has a lot of, a lot of, uh, political baggage associated with it. You want to take a crack at, you know, trying to explain that it's, you know, the world isn't going to end, but it's a very expensive reality ultimately. You know? Yeah. It, you know, there, there's so many things to say about climate change and like, you know, 
when was it, you know, Al Gore, like, you know, so many, like a couple of decades ago, right? Like, you know, he was bringing this and inconvenient truth to the forefront of society. And even then it was like super dismissed. And like 20 years later, we're still dismissing it to a degree where we're about to screw ourselves pretty hard. Um, I think that uh, the reluctancy to address climate change, particularly in the United States, is, is just a product of um, a combination of misinformation. And like what I always tell my mother-in-law, it doesn't matter if she's telling me drive safe, be careful. I'm like, don't tell me what to do. Just don't tell me what to do, even though it's in my best interest. Um, and I think there's a lot of people out there that don't, don't tell me what to do. And they want to dismiss what is uh, otherwise like prudent, um, you know, good, good, good guidance and, and data driven. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you know, the whole thing around pseudoscience, like, you know, there can be a hundred scientists out there that put out a report, but if one of them aligns with my worldviews, that's the only one I want to look at. And I'm going to yeah. use it to dismiss the other 99. We see a lot of that. Um, and we have, but I think that, you know, just like oil and gas, like I think they're seeing it and you see like the big players in oil and gas who are thinking about sustainability are thinking about carbon. Yeah. And, and, you know, diversifying, kind of investing in renewables, you see it. Uh, they're trying to reduce their, their carbon outputs. They're trying to find and test novel mitigation strategies and abatement strategies. And they're putting, and they're, and they're the ones that are resourced to be able to do it as a part of their business. You got a lot of money to do, to do stuff. Yeah. Like that and, and you know, we, we may shame them for saying like, you know, it, it's it's this so small amount of money that you're putting into it, but that money is driving so much of the good work that we are doing that we must appreciate it and and hopefully encourage them to continue to invest and grow that investment. Yeah. The small actors, and I see this out particularly on West Texas, the Wildcatters, you know, people like you and me that that went into this industry and went to go make some quick bucks are the ones that are that are kind of like really fouling things up. In, in making a bad image for the larger industry in some cases. Uh, I've seen this in, you know, uh, orphaned well abandonment in West Texas, where you have these leaky methane, these me, uh, leaky frack wells that were never plugged properly, leaking methane. And like, you can see it and like, they're now bankrupt. So they take no responsibility, yeah. um, put the, put the burden back on, on um, the public uh, right. to address those issues. Um, I, I think that, I, I think that we're, we're we're very near, and particularly in Texas, being a really unique opportunity state, where um, carbon sequestration through grasslands um, management and restoration, yeah, a lot of a lot of ideas around the opportunity for regenerative grazing, which you know we thought of cows as being a pretty big big bad actor with methane emissions of farting. How do you, how do you feel about that? Because we had millions of bison on the landscape. I don't we yeah. have way more cattle, obviously, but ungulates have always been here and that's always an argument people go with is well we had bison before they produced that thing yeah well i you know i think sure that um sure i think americans probably eat a lot of beef and, and yeah. we're not ready to change that behavior um and and we have a lot of uh open space lands owner particularly in the midwestern states and the grassland states that are making their living and keeping tracts of land intact simply because they can be a viable operation yeah. farming and ranching yeah. that um, there's an important balance to seek. And, and we're also seeing like regenerative grazing. If you do some best management practice, you actually can see those grasslands be more of a sink than way more of a sink right. than what is produced. Um, Mimicking that bison herbivory. 
yeah you know, disturbance and, in the soil and and you know long the long-term play is like we need to store carbon methane you know it breaks down on a much shorter timeline once it reaches the atmosphere i mean it's a bigger bad actor but um so there you know there's some there's some math that can be done here right that says here's the trade-offs like you know if we were if we restore through the use of of, of cattle doing biomimicry, replicating what bison once did, and we restore the uh, soil storage capacity of these grasslands through their roots and the soil, carbon, and whatever else, then uh, are we getting a, a, a big net gain? Yeah. And if we are getting a big, big net gain, can we then have the polluters, and we'll use polluters very loosely, I don't mean that to be a negative term, but, you know, obviously things that we benefit from were created from pollution sources. But if those polluters as part of their business plans can say, hey, we're going to try to neutralize our, our carbon output by investing in incentivizing landowners that can sink that carbon into their soil and grass or whatever Store ecosystems. forests, then, um, then we've done a good thing because yeah. I think the most important thing that we can do moving forward is to continue to incentivize and to make profitable landowners that own large parcels, larger parcels operating on, on a land-based economy. Um, and that, you know, farmers, ranchers, because that's, that's where we're going to lose our ass is when right. those guys have to sell to make ends meet or sell right. out. Yeah. Um, and, and then those, <laughs> those larger parcels become smaller parcels, become Walmarts, become yeah. parking lots and roads and neighborhoods. It seems like uh, it seems like we could get more. You know, I, you know, the hunting community is very important to me. I, I consider myself to be a part of the hunting community, and um, you know, a lot of people in that community don't think much about stuff like climate change. But this carbon sequestration can be really beneficial for hunters and anglers. You know, restoring these ecosystems to store carbon can benefit all sorts of outdoors people. You know. Yeah, we can wildlife uh, I mean, in general. You're you're a duck hunter. I mean, yeah. you you you've probably seen in your years of hunting a later and later arrival potentially of 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 oh it's bad this season. Fowl. It's bad this season. Yeah, this season's been incredible, right? And that's because yeah. like the the lakes haven't the lakes and ponds haven't froze up in the upper prairie pothole regions where these yeah. birds are going to. That's the signal that a lot of these right. animals are going to look at to to start moving south, and um. And is that a direct result to cl car, uh, climate change? I, I would say probably. I mean, yeah. the data indicates that something's happening, and this is this is a this is a single data point, so we won't make huge conclusions. But right, it's just one season. But this is a trend we can probably yeah. expect to see more and more often. So this yeah. disruption of signals, disruption of migratory patterns, phenology all sorts all jacked of, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like. You know, there should be much more value. And then yeah. and I can use a duck hunting example because, you know, that's a migratory species. But yeah. you know, think about, I don't know, like caribou or right. elk, and like moving up and down mountains. Like, it is cool to see. Hunters, uh, hunters got to see this. Ducks Unlimited is, is, um, has a, has a, um, approach to climate change. And that's cool to see because that's a hunter, hunter led kind of organization. Great biologists all like the duck hunt, passion about waterfowl. And they are talking a lot about climate and how they can use their wetland restoration programs um, for that carbon sequestration. Yeah. So that's kind of cool well, to see. 
The Ducks Unlimited, um, one of our most important partners at, at Audubon. I mean, these guys are phenomenal in, um, in in their approaches to some of their work, and you know they're they're doing it on behalf of a membership that's largely interested in you know being able to hunt yeah. um, sustainably ducks into the long term future and to have places to do that and have factories that produce ducklings um, for future hunting. This is beautiful sustainability model. We get way into Pittman Robertson and duck stamps and all those sorts of things. But um, man, they are, they're doing big work along the Texas coast to address um, sea level rise and some of the erosion issues that were like, you know, some of these uh, like, you know, estuarine uh, marshes, these brackish areas that are being infiltrated by straight up seawater and things that, that become very disruptive Um they're keeping a pulse on this and they're addressing it and, and then like preserving the opportunity to hunt redheads, you know, in some of these spots, like that's, that's important. Yeah, and, that's cool. and I think it's really, I think it's beautiful, but um, man, I, I would never want to use the word a tired old model, but like the, the user pay uh, consumptive use model is one that needs to be diversified um, because at scale, it is our biggest, you know, one of our biggest contributors to every state DNR department of natural resources, our Texas parks and wildlife is like, I, I think the wildlife division is 97% funded by PNR, Pittman Robertson dollars. So yeah, which is you know, by these fees, by these gun excise taxes that are generated, and and then re-administrate re to the states like 97% of our own dollars that manage our wildlife resources in the state of Texas, you know, come from like these two narrow sources. Right. Which means that we're only looking at a hundred species of animals management. Yeah. Right. At, at, uh, through the lens of that 97% of allocation of funding through that division. Yeah. And there's a lot more animals out there than just those. Yeah. And a lot more wildlife subgroups that you know can be contributing yeah like, like hunters yeah. and anglers but just to, to close out the climate stuff one mm. thing my professors always told us is they really um they really tried to kind of debunk alarmism it's like they told us it's not it's not productive to run around saying the world is ending because there's no data yeah. to, to suggest that um, but mm. what they did say is it's um it's basically an expensive reality you know for society and, yeah. you know, obviously, um, some biodiversity, um, can really, can really suffer from that, but yeah, we can, we can shift out of that unless you have anything else to say about. No, I, I, I think we probably should, man. We could beat that. And there's a people out there that are a lot more expert than right. you and I probably are on it. Definitely. I, I think it, you know, through the lens of the way that we see the world, hunting, fishing, wildlife diversity yeah. i mean it's a it's it's a problem that's not going to go away we need yeah. to address it i wish that the united states and particularly texas was a little less reluctant in some of its right. decision making but um we can always find criticisms to throw at yeah. you know any any sort of leadership and, and another thing i want to add is um every energy source is going to have an environmental impact uh, i mean it's not great to go out to west texas and see mm wind turbines across the landscape that's also, huge that solar also sucks. or solar farms that sucks yeah. too. you know that i wish there was another better way to, to get energy um but energy is just a complicated issue all around and i have a lot of friends that that live very comfortable lives working in oil and gas and i'm so happy for them and that's you know I, when i talk about climate change i don't mean to disrespect them or anything it, 
these are just societal problems ultimately you know yeah well let, let me before we close out that subject completely let me let me make one one little plug here um just for and this will be kind of more particular to your listeners that that are in texas but i think it's something that everybody should have some awareness of but i'm i am really um through my work with Audubon, and this is, you know, this is Romy's opinion, not an Audubon opinion. Um, it has been really sort of interesting to see the work of the General Land Office or Texas General Land Office. So this is the, the group that holds and stewards the state-owned lands and helps to fund um, the school, the universities and the schools in some ways. But they they put together a pretty um, pretty important uh, master planning document, and it's focused on the coast of, um, in this case, but it's called the, the the Texas Coastal Resiliency Master Plan. And in it, without specifically calling out, you know, climate change and sea level rises these as specific issues, they, they, you know, coastal resiliency right. is all about trying to to combat those problems yeah. emerging from it. So they they've worked with stakeholders and partners all up and down the Texas coast to to um, highlight important projects that need to be undertaken um, by someone, another, and they also do some funding, but not directly out of this the, the same planning document. Um, and and so you know, I'm pretty proud of those sorts of things. And it's like yeah. almost a sneaky way that our um, our elected officials and in, in our agencies have to operate. They have to kind of use specific tamed down language to address these issues that are otherwise climate change related. Um, our current um, uh, uh, executive director or, or whatever the adjacent is, director for the general land office is retiring. And so there's going to be an open election for the next person. A lot of times this position is a stepping stone to bigger ambitions in politics, but we do have at least one candidate on the Democratic ticket that is worth um, recognizing. His name's Jay Clayburg. Jay is, um, you know, he's, he's deep in the conservation work. He, this is a fluent language for him. And um, he, he's running on the Democratic ticket, which, you know, probably makes it a, a pretty big hill to climb to, yeah. to become elected. Yeah. But in his campaign language already, he's saying, look, I'm using words that that nobody in this position has ever used. I'm I'm acknowledging that climate change is real, and we need to do something with it. And this is this is a platform that can that can do some some work within Texas. So I think it's important to be aware. Yeah. You know, and those elected you know elections are always kind of like um, I don't want to I don't want to call them mandates because that can be an overused word, but elections can can do have consequences and right. who you elect will, will ultimately um, dictate the way that we do things and, and illustrate what the public demands right. of our, of our representation. So Jay Clayberg is a good name to, to be aware of out there. Well, the uh, cool thing about him is he's got that ranching background, right? Yeah. He's got a deep, a deep connection deep, to Texas ranching. Yeah. Deep legacy in ranching in, in South Texas um, you know, I think everybody recognizes the King Ranch and, and you know, his, uh, you know, his family affiliation with that. But that's not that's not necessarily, um, you know, the, the, the legacy that he's creating for himself. I think yeah, he's, right. I think he's an independent, completely independent thinker, yeah. has dedicated his life to conservation. You know, he's a bit he's the producer for Deep in the Heart, which yeah. you and I have both been in, involved in helping out with. 
our, our blue chip soon to come out in a few months. Oh, man, I can't uh, wait. I'm so pumped up about it, dude. That's the big thing. Planet Earth for Texas. I know. Yeah. I know. Maybe, maybe that's a good, maybe that's a good yeah, man, Let's get out of that boring stuff. <laughs> um, you had a badass year, 2021. We did. 170. You did. Well, I, I 178 did. species of snakes. If I'm well, right. herps. Of herps. Oh, that was, that was herps. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember. Herp, so herps. Yeah. Herp. Uh, My bad. Yeah. 178 herps, species of herps in Texas. We've got, we got 178 snakes. I wish we did. <laughs> Man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think we, I think we tap out around 80, yeah, yes. 80 plus snakes yeah. in, in the state of Texas. I had 56 species of snake though. Yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of herp. You got a lot of herps this year. Yeah. I, so, I mean, just, just for, you know, the color, for, for the listeners a little bit, the idea here was at the beginning of the year, um, and this is another like shared passion for Andrew and I, like um, big, big reptile and amphibian guys, as well as everything else. I mean, I don't think there's anything we're not interested in, but yeah. these are the things that kind of like tickle the fancy day to day or whatever. And I've, I, you know, I did my master's. I told you I mentioned I'm, we did my master's degree and I was focused on reptiles and amphibians out there at the Ottine wetlands around Palmetto state park. And, um, and then, you know, a little say, just like the creepy crawlies are interesting. Like that's where like so many kids get, get interested in things like salamanders or frogs or whatever. And, um, but somewhere in my career, I realized that like nobody pays you for, for, for knowing anything about reptiles and amphibians. I'm like, dude, I'm really hamstringing myself here. So like immediately when I got into the, into the job world, I realized that it's particularly in central Texas. Like if you know birds, you have a, higher likelihood of being able to go outside and, and count things and get paid for it as yeah. long as it's birds. So I, I started to learn um, about our central Texas birds and Texas wide birds and the natural history. It was super fascinating. But I was able to, to kind of make um, advancements on that quickly. Um, I, my understanding and recognition of birds and, and particularly birds, songs and calls because of my study of, of, of frog calls, like I, you know, that was one of the things, one of my techniques in, in, in trying to identify and assess how many of whatever was out there was understanding frog calls. And there's only like, I don't know, like 10 calls I need to know in that area. And there's like probably 300 bird calls in the same area. But um, the, the bird, the, that, that intro into the birding world was like kind of necessary because I wanted to secure myself, I wanted to be marketable. I wanted to do jobs that were interesting, which, which you know, there's lots of bird survey opportunities in, in the world. Um, but entering into that world, I realized like birding's a thing. And that's birding as in just going out and looking for birds. And then lo- listing is a thing and having a life list and like going out into a county and having a county list of birds is a thing. And there's a, and there's a robust community of bird watchers. Now they're not all blue haired vested older ladies. There's, it's a pretty diverse group. Although really that, that demographic is a probably a pretty significant <laughs> proportion of, them. Yeah. but um, so, I mean, for, for a long time, five, six years, I was like all, all bird nerd and it was really great. And I would love to get into some, some of the reasons it's great personally for me because yep. it, it was therapeutic maybe mm-hmm. later, but um but for let's just say for like wildlife and nature study it was incredible because birds are everywhere. There's so many of them and they're yep. so representative. Like you have generalists and you have specialists and they're accessible and you'll have some species that are limited to a very particular, like, you know, um, 
like zone of mountains in West Texas versus a corridor of, of gallery forests along the Rio Grande Valley or in their migratory patterns and their behavior. So so much detail and nuance yeah. you can get into in studying these. And we got, you know, we got like 655 species except on the accepted list for Texas. So we're in a, we're as a state, we're in a hot spot. Yeah. We got of that list about probably 500 of them use Texas regularly as part of their natural life cycles, whether they're resident or um, overwintering or migratory, and they're just passing through, and there's, yep. you know there's a stopover habitat for them. So there's just really an interesting um, level and deep history of appreciation for birds. I mean, our, our one of our greatest presidents, Teddy Roosevelt, was a huge bird watcher as a child, which that's so formative. interesting. So I read so, his a book about him, and that was the thing that stuck out the most is what he did for fun as a kid. He'd go out and bird watch, and but he would also collect bird specimens. He'd go out and shoot mm-hmm. birds, and 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 yeah, up for scientific study. And so you read The Naturalist? Yeah, I read The Naturalist. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's like there's like so many biographies was, on him, but that one's particular to like our world. I love the um the hunter naturalist. The, what yeah. um phrase i guess i like to think i'm a hunter naturalist you are i, I mean you're cool. absolutely like you look man like if you went back 100 and in 10 years 120 years 130 years even the guy a little earlier in his life like you you guys would hit it off right. like like gangbusters it's like he, now, you might have to box him you might have to fight him a little bit right. but like his love of of natural history um part, part of that was um you know, a consumptive use. It was going out yeah. and harvesting the game and, but also, yeah. you know, uh, contributing to scientific collections. And that's just so cool to me. I, I wish there was more of a, a push for like the hunter naturalist kind of way of well, things. I, and I there was a train thought earlier, but let, let me, let me jump on this topic for a second. Like uh, what I love about it. And I was teasing earlier about how like the birder today in a lot of ways is characterized by the like blue haired older woman wearing right. a vest. Right. 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 But like back in that, like 1900s and, and late 1800s period, like birding was a macho pursuit. Yeah. Like you, you, it was manly. It was dominated by men. And um, you went out and you hunted, you know, you used your salt and pepper shot out of a 28 gauge shotgun or whatever. And you shot every bird and then you like preserved the skin and you like reformed it and you put it in your collection, you collected eggs. Like it was like the manly thing to do. Yeah. And like, let me tell you this, like Teddy Roosevelt, you read these not, you read these biographies, like there, there wasn't anything that was unmanly about this dude. If it wasn't manly, he wasn't going to do it. Right. So birding was a super macho sport, but the sustainability of bird conservation was led by women. We'll all acknowledge that. It might have been kicked yeah. off, started by men, but the sustainability of bird conservation was women. Yeah. But Teddy, you know, like instrumental in so many of our foundational protections for, for birds and for wildlife, a sanctuary system, like it all started with him becoming president. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Like, I wish you or one of our friends would, would become ambitious and, and just flow through the ranks. You need to read the rise of Teddy Roosevelt to see how some of this works. Um, We need another Teddy Roosevelt. (laughs) And just like get, get up to that, get up to that level again and and like course correct some of the stuff. And we getting back into politics for saying like, I, I, I think it's really cool is that society has set some standards 
And even though the, we have these back and forth, president to president, administration to administration, it is a, it is a relatively narrow pendulum swing. Yeah. Like we have bedrock. It's probably not going to erode away beyond a certain level. Now, like, you know, we probably saw some things getting goddamn close this, this last four years. Yeah. Um, and that was very concerning, but like, what's really cool is that like the bedrock's there. We acknowledge yeah. that, that, that in the United States society has indicated that we cherish uh, clean air, clean water, wildlife, and that we're going to yeah. protect it. And those protections are going to be there. They may not be as strong. Some, some cycles, some, yeah. some administrations as others, but even um, at our worst, are. we're better than, than much. Um, I mean, I'm, I don't know much about other countries but we have a great model here we really do we really do have a good concert the north american yeah. conservation model yeah could work in a lot of other places in the world it seems like maybe not your third world countries where they don't have the resources to do that sort of thing but yeah um, have you have you ever um have you ever looked into a, a gentleman named shane mahoney I have not. It sounds familiar, but I don't know much about. He's got a. Um, I think he's got like a YouTube page. Um, he hasn't put anything up in a couple of years, but he is super big in the North American model. And the funny thing about it is, I think he's like Swedish or something. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and and so when you look at like um, when you look at the Wildlife Society or or um, maybe John Hopkins press or something, just put out a book on the North American model. Like he's okay. the author yeah. like type thing. And he's like, not, not even American, not even um, American. But, cool. but this dude, like older charismatic white haired, white bearded dude is just like an inspirational speaker. I saw him speak in person one time here in Texas. And, um, and, and, and he is just like an animated, energizing, enthusiastic soul for, for the North American model yeah. and how it works. Now I, I think the North American model needs to be updated. Yeah. There needs to be some not just new hunters. There needs to be other, other yeah. angles. Yeah. We need some new pillars. You know, yeah. we need, we need to add a, you know, an eighth and ninth pillar probably and tweak some of the ones in there, but yeah. it has worked and it has yes. demonstrably worked. I mean, I love in my work at Audubon. I, um, we talk about that 3 billion uh, birds report. Remember that came out in 2019, yeah. 3 billion birds lost in the past. 50 years. years. Oh, 50, yeah, 50 years. 50 years. Yeah. yeah. Over. So since 1970, okay. Yeah. Um, relative to the, to the period of <laughs> 1970 to today, we've lost about 3 billion birds, individual birds. So we're, which is a, represents about a quarter of all the birds in North America. And um, what's interesting is that that loss has, doesn't hit each of the guilds, diff, uh, each of the guilds the same. So when I mean, by that, you got like woodpeckers and yeah, you got yeah. some long-legged water birds and ducks and things like that, eagles. So each guild is hit differently. And in some cases, we've seen considerable recovery of some birds, i.e. raptors, eagles, hawks, yeah. falcons, i.e. woodpeckers, which I mentioned just a little bit, and waterfowl. And each of those has benefited, has recovered through kind of a different model Waterfowl, certainly from user fees, right? Duck stamps, Pittman-Robertson dollars, our dedication to preserving places for, for you and I to hunt uh, sustainably into the future. So ducks have been have recovered. 
Uh, Eagles, I think Eagles, Hawks, uh, and Falcons largely have recovered uh, over that period of time because of our uh, societal awakening, um, largely due by Rachel Carson's work in Silent Spring, DDT use, chemical use, and the impacts to um, that particular guild of species. Adjusting and creating new best management practices, innovation through, you know, because nobody stopped spraying weeds and bugs and whatever else to just use different chemicals that didn't result in like um, shell, shell thinness and, you know, what, all those other negative impacts. Yeah. And, and oh, by the way, brown pelicans on the Texas coast. Yeah. And then woodpeckers, I think, I, I don't know for sure, but my, my instinct tells me that just, um, you know, we're not like just cutting over forests anymore combined with, um, the idea that some of our neighbors neighborhoods have matured and we're thinking more about f- uh, urban forestry, like, yeah. like even new Braunfels has an urban forester that whose job it is to just kind of go around and like, make sure that we have mature trees in neighborhoods and on municipally owned parks, space and okay, businesses. Yeah. And like, that's, it's a, a really great, cool way because they kind of create this, um, usable space for, a, a, di- a different, you know, not just like generalist species in, in neighborhoods, but also you're addressing some of that like um, heat island effect, right? Yeah, from urban centers yep. too by by planting and growing trees. Yeah, you know, now largely everything else is going down. Grassland birds in particular, grassland birds are, are in bad shape, right? Yeah, that they're tanking the hardest. Um, you know, if we think that. There's been a, a, um, a 25% decrease across all species of birds. Grassland birds have been hit the hardest at about 54% overall. Yeah. And it hits even harder for those um, like uh, Chihuahuan desert arid grassland obligate species. So those species that nest up north, but overwinter in our Chihuahuan desert, including like the Marfa grasslands, Marathon grasslands in, in West Texas and New Mexico and, and certainly Mexico. Like those species um, apparently have decreased 80%, over 80%. So right. like abysmal, like very concerning, even though there's some like super in Texas, at least super intact representation of that, of that um, ecosystem, that landscape, but we're a very small percentage. It's of when they, when they migrate back North is when they yeah. have problems. Yeah, we're well, West well, Texas. Maybe, but Mexico's got an incredible amount of development going on too. And they, oh, and they hold, they hold the lion's share of, of that habitat type. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think it's a combination of both. You know, when you think of Texas, uh, Texas uh, ecosystem degradation, it seems like the Trans-Pecos is faring fairly well across, you know, compared to the Piney Woods or the Coastal Prairie or the Blackland Prairie or. Yeah, I think you're right. South Texas, West Texas, and parts of parts of the Panhandle. Right. Yeah. On the far um, north end. Enjoy just being large intact ranches and working lands that haven't yet been broken down that, um, you know, you're what, six hours from San Antonio from, from a lot of those places. They generally don't have fertile soil. That's the key factor there. (laughs) Uh, Another really good and valid point. Yeah. Like you go to like, you look at South Texas and every, you look at it on aerials, every inch of that fertile Rio Grande floodplain that once had oh like my God. miles of sable palms and whatnot. That's all plowed up. And then you go into the north and that sand sheet, it's very, very delineated very well. Yeah. Where the sand starts because there's no development, no urban uh, yeah. agricultural development because it's worthless for 
Uh, yeah. Can't grow anything. Coffee. So it never got plowed over. The ranch stayed large and intact. Like, you yeah. know, which is they cool. Made their, there's, I wish there was more public land in that sand sheet because there's no access. I've been one time and that was on the uh, East Foundation, El Sol's ranch. Oh, yeah. I got to look at that with uh, Toby, uh, Toby's herb class. Toby oh, herb man. Class. What a treat, dude. Yeah. It was cool. Yeah. It was really cool. I was just adjacent to there when I fought, saw my life or cat eyed snake. Oh, I know exactly where you were. <laughs> yeah, you know exactly where I was. I, I hear that uh fellows like you and me might be doing a herpathon too in that in that country somewhere on a on a private ranch yeah next year oh yeah that sounds yeah wait i don't know about this but well i'm all in <laughs> we'll talk more about it offline but, yeah that uh, sounds good to me man you know very very similar to like what we did this year at elephant mountain um, okay, I know you only got to hang out for a couple of days on that one but um, that was a heck of a trip though yeah, uh, our, our friend Ben Masters is very animated and excited about um, kind of creating an annual tradition of doing a herpathon event. And oh, I'm uh, all in. I'm all in. For nerds like you and I go out there and help the help the cinematographers collect some animals to film yeah. that otherwise don't necessarily get the platform and spotlight that they should in Texas. Yeah. And that's that was one of the purposes of the herping big year. That's what I was. That's where we got off track. Um, yep. Birding big year, birding listing. I translated it to this herping effort yeah, and, yeah. And, and to try to put that spotlight on a, a group of animals that are often maligned and misunderstood. Um, so that was kind of the idea. There. It got you out to some cool places. You hit, I don't know how many counties you must have hit to get those 178 herps. I, 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 um, I think I hit every eco region, all definitely every. So. You had to have hit every eco region at least. Yeah, no, I didn't get any. You know, much further north than like Muleshoe and the Panhandle. But um, you know, when I uh, I don't know if you know Drew, my, my good buddy Drew Harvey, um, sort of served as a guide for me and a, and a friend that went with me up there named Greg Hall. And you know, all, every target animal that we wanted that we could get in a in a weekend hot shot we got because this guy just was like, here's where we're going to go for that. And here's where we're going for that. And it just worked out. The weather was phenomenal. Yeah, this, that year big was rain. this year was an incredible year for the panhandle. Like wow. oftentimes it's, it's, it's just Brown and crispy and hot and windy. And when we hit it, when we left, like it was kind of a short notice, kind of like when you and I met, like the rain was there, we're going me and Greg, Greg picked me up here in Austin. He drove us several hours and we, we drove straight to the center of the eye of a storm up there. And I had not seen in a decade the number of anurins out, frogs and toads, particularly spadefoots on the roads. We got everything we were looking for up there, um, at least in the amphibian world, not all this the is where This is where um, one of the few cases where climate change can perhaps be a good thing and we had a big rain year in Texas and yeah, like those burrowing toads must've had their biggest year for breeding. Cause all the extra rain that perhaps is a result of climate change. You, you and I saw those burrowing toads down in South Texas and yeah. we thought this is, this was the only time that we were going to have this chance to get this. They came up it. like several more I, times, I, I think. I remember hugging you like <laughs> a bear hug when we got at the yeah. end of that night. And I was like, we just met, but I gotta, get, we gotta do this. Right. And then like, um, and then I was like, I, I, I kind of thought like, oh man, we're so, we're so cool. We're so lucky. And then like, I don't even think it was like a couple of weeks later, like somebody like Seth Patterson or somebody was like taking pictures of burrowing toads yeah. down there. I'm like, and then they were there again, like yeah. and just for the listeners. I mean, just, just kind of 
paint the picture a little bit better. This, this is a species of animal that's restricted like two counties in South Texas. It, it lives almost its entire life underground. It emerges when there's three inches of rain typically or more, which doesn't happen often at all. Sometimes maybe not even in a, in a full year annual cycle. And um, so you got this, and that, this is the only place in the United States where you're going to find it. Now in, in Mexico, they're, they're, they're much more common and they have. And all the way down unique. into central, you know, Costa Rica, down yeah. Central America. Yeah. yeah. But they just teeter into the state. They just poke into this one region of South Texas that represents their entire range in, in all of the United States. And then, so you combine this range restriction with this behavior restriction where like, they're only going to come up two and a half, three inches of rain or more. They're going to be explosive breeders and recalling around super unique call. Like, whatever it is. I can't ever do it, but yeah. I, I think I could do it, but it's been a few months. Um, and, and they're bulbous. Like I remember when you and I, like we, we worked hours. We were, we were, we could hear them like at nine o'clock. I mean, early, like early yeah. in the night we could hear them. And we're like, well, you know, if I was that type of person, I'd be done. Like, you know, onto the thing. I got a recording. I can make it out on my phone. I could document it. But you and I were both sort of on a mission. We were like, I got to see one and I would love to photograph it. And we had to work our tails off um, to find one that was accessible because it's all private lands. Like yeah. we have access to roads. We need to have a frog calling from garbage, basically. And it took us hours and hours and hours to find one. We found one late, like, oh, this will be the last stop. Right, Andrew? This will be it the last twice time. or three times, I think. <laughs> we stopped. We heard one. It's calling in a distance, and it seems to be at a trajectory that is accessible, like a barge. But, like, we would go a couple hundred yards towards the sound, and, and we'd get there, and we'd stop, and we'd listen, and it'd be, like, still a couple hundred yards away. Yeah. And, and we did, like, three or four or five times before we were actually on top of the animal and finally, and finally found it and finally found it to be accessible yeah. and got it in our hands looked at it got some photographs yeah. of it video picked it up man it it, it it was such a good feeling when i picked that that animal up how do you describe it how do you describe holding that animal in your hand like i mean you can talk it any way emotional like alien. well the, the appearance is is they're they're a very unique from an evolutionary standpoint the most one of the most unique amphibians and urines in the world frogs in the world yeah. you know that they're in their own family. There's no other species in that family. Um, they just look so different, so prehistoric looking. They got this, yeah, they're bulbous. Like they just yeah. look like a little ball of flesh. I don't know. They're just I, so weird. 100% agree with you. Everything you yeah. just said. I, I don't I think know. That... I'm not good. I'm not a good, uh, I'm not good at describing things, but yeah, they're, they're neat. Yeah. They're neat. Me neither. I'm not an artist, but if I'm painting with words, what it describes, I just have to go back to a childhood, like kind of close to a childhood memory. And I remember like, you know, Nickelodeon gag, which was that green slime that you could buy and hold in your hand. That's like a, a, a little pile of that in your hand and you shake it and it jiggles yeah. just like that. Yeah. And it's got a little funky beak at the front end that represents its face. And yeah. there's some legs attached. It's That's exactly how I would describe it. And it was uh, kind of bittersweet that we didn't get to see it calling, though. I would yeah. like to see them calling up close. That would be really well, cool. Well, I'd like to see tadpoles. Tadpoles, too. Yeah. I would very like to unique. see tadpoles. Very unique tadpoles. Super interesting looking. Very unique. Like yeah. Little, they almost look like um, 
like what what is the like uh, those little like shrimp things that you see in ephemeral wetlands in central Apple Texas? Shrimp? Yeah, it's kind of like kind of like those. I Maybe. something like that jogs my memory as to what they look like. That's why I call them tadpole shrimp because they they're, they kind of look like a tad. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, that's that is um, you know at some point whenever I get uh, into actually writing for the blog that I started for that big year, which I've been derelict. Go ahead and plug your blog right now before we forget. Oh yeah, uh, www.moderntexasnaturalist.com. I got a couple little entries in there from early uh, in the the herping big year when when I went out with Matt Buckingham to um, look for Salam uh, and Scott Wahlberg yeah. and Adam Black. Yeah, uh, my, some of my people I look up to the most, really. And Caro, uh, of course. Caro spots who actually found most of the most Caro of the stuff finds we're everything. For. Matt just there to point a camera at the animals. Yeah, he just Caro has the, the fancy camera equipment, and then Adam's doing incredible things with an iPhone, right? Like, right. <laughs> Uh, but we had an incredible time in, in uh, early January looking for endistomids and, and plethodonids, uh, salamanders in, in East Texas. And um, that was like my first entry point to, to that group of species in East Texas. And I was just like blown away. Amazing. The beauty, the beauty, the, the natural history, the scenery. The beach slopes out there. Oh, amazing, yeah. Amazing, man. The ephemeral wetlands, the, mi- the story about migrations um this like rapid like we gotta hurry up and get this done uh get back on the ground yeah yeah. it was it was great there's a couple of stories up there on the blog about that and um and and you know at that time i was really thinking about trying to make these little like cutesy quick clip two minute videos off my iphone from little candids at that time And, and so there's a couple of clips in there um, I, I need to go back and, and maybe see if I can like recreate some of these trips through through that medium and then also tell some stories. But here in the next probably week and a half, I've got a, a, a series of ideas I'm going to start throwing up there so that anybody who wants to go check out Modern Texas Naturalist um, should have some pretty cool content. But the, um, where I failed on the blog, I think I, I kind of like did a good job on Instagram. That's where, um, you know, using a different medium that I could be a little bit more consistent with sharing just photographs yeah. in, in the quick vignettes, you know, I got you. people, people like the, you know, get in, get out, get a quick story. I get a little long winded. I have reached, you know, um, uh, uh, limits on words and, and letters and Instagram stories, uh, and, and Instagram posts before, but, um, there's some good, there's some good stuff in there. If you don't mind reading a paragraph or two. Yeah. And that's at, um, <clears throat> uh handle Romy Swanson dot wildlife. Yeah. Um, so lots of good stories. But I do need to I do need to um really get into the the blogs and storytelling because the the idea was that with the blog we're not only just like um highlighting and platforming a group of species that are often maligned and, and misunderstood. Um, and it certainly wasn't is it wasn't intended to be like an adventure blog, just storytelling. Like I went here and I found this, and you should too. But to also um, tell the stories around the people, places, and organizations that people, are doing this. Work. The people really do it for me. My yeah. experience is last year was a big year for me for people meeting you, people like you, you know, yeah. masters, um, Adam Black. Mm-hmm. Texas is such an amazing place for for meeting naturalists it really is you know i mean there's other states other places around but texas has a very unique naturalist community and i'm very happy to be a part of it i 
I'm right there with you. Like in, in like finding our community and in, in, in finding fellowship around the campfire at the end of an exhausting day of like flipping logs or just tromping through, you know, bagel for, you know, whatever it is. It is so refreshing to have like just peers and friends and to come around in fellowship around this and, and to know that you're not alone. Yeah. That's what's, that's the hard part about like the quote from Leopold, like you're, you're wandering through a landscape being one of the only people that can acknowledge the scars, right? Finding your fellowship and, and sharing that disparity, and then like, but also looking for like, you know, there's always somebody in the group that's an optimist, and they're like, "Hey, man, yeah, I know that sucks, but look at this. Like, we we just saved five thousand acres of of, of Columbia bottomlands, man. Like, let's celebrate. Drink a beer. Here's a white claw. Let's do this. Cheers, cheers to that. Yeah, brother. Like, I, and thanks for turning me on this, by the way. Like, I, I've had a white lot claws. Less. Yeah. Yeah, they're good. Not, they are. And and I was wondering if maybe we could, you know, I've heard you kind of maybe mention it a couple of times on, on the podcast before, but like you and I both share another trait is that we both got some like stomach really, problems, man. Our really, stomach really problems intense stomach terrible. problems. And and it as biologists, that's that's significant, you know, because yeah. we're out in the field all the time and we're traveling right. around and well, uh, you actually are diagnosed with uh, colitis or something, right? Crohn's disease or Crohn's. Okay. Yeah. Even worse. Yeah. Ulcerative colitis. So I haven't been diagnosed, but I know my dad has ulcerative colitis and I'm bound to have it too. I just, I've been yeah. away with not taking medicine, but it's rough. Yeah. Well, I got diagnosed two, two years ago, right before COVID started. And I, but I've been struggling with symptoms for eight years Yeah. and, and you're exactly right. Like when you don't know and, and you've lived a normal, fairly normal life and you, and you go to a phase where like you're having you know, intestinal issues. And, um, and the unfortunate thing is that, that a lot of the work that I ever did in private consulting and wildlife management was like, you know, landowner wants to meet you at like daybreak right. on a property and they want to walk and they want to ride an ATV and then they want to feed you a bunch of barbecue. Oh, they want to feed that's, the, that's what gets me the most is when they want to feed you. So I have to say yes. no and I feel bad. And you can't say no because that is disrespectful. I and say, I say no now. because. I don't give a yeah. shit now. I say no. Yeah, you have to. Well, and I, and I think we I think we know a lot more, even like in the last 10 years. But like when I got diagnosed, it was like so refreshing because I was suffering like intestinal issues and like, you know, trying to like wake up hours earlier than I needed to leave just to like try to whatever's going to happen this morning happens in this period. And hopefully I get to the property. that doesn't. And yeah. that didn't always work out. And then um, and then the other thing is, and I'm sure you sort of experienced this too, is like, you know, if you, if you're not careful and you go into like some sort of like flare event, it's not just uh, tummy aches and, no, and it's you know, headaches, bad, bad body, you know, bowel movements or whatever, but it leads it's into also depression. Like, it leads into depression. Depression. Uh, I have, I, my big thing is like, I get like major uh, pains in my major joints, like shoulders and hips. So like, I'll, I'll have that. And then the probably the worst thing is like, this like crazy fatigue, like wake up. I like to wake up early five 36 and then like, you know, seven, like some days, like seven 38 o'clock rolls out. Like when the day properly starts, I'm like, I'm exhausted. I like, as if I hadn't just slept eight hours and I typically try to sleep eight hours. It was amazing. So finally, like I went, got kind of like, um, some therapeutics, not very far down this path. I don't have a lot of uh, confidence in my doctor. <laughs> I, I'll just kind of be front upfront about it. I never do. But I have had, I've had some medication that has fixed some symptoms, but not all of them. And, and my intestinal symptoms are like not better at all, but like the, the shoulder pains and the fatigue, 
a lot better on some of the stuff I'm on. But um, the goal is remission. The goal is to like live long periods of time in your life without any of these symptoms. Feeling good. Feeling yeah. Good. And I'm not there and I haven't been there in 10 years and I'm waiting for the day. So like saying, so, you know, I'm, I'll be 2022 is about like 2021 was about a herping big year and 2022 is about like getting my body better. Online. Do you sacrifice a lot of your health when you're, you're busting ass trying to have a herping big year traveling around all the time? Oh yeah. Now you can kind of, you're going into this new year kind of relaxing now. It seems like, Oh my gosh. Yeah, dude. I'm at home, man. I'm like, right. I'm six feet from a toilet at any time. I'm like, not to be too gross, but like, that's, no, that makes my life a lot better. My stress right. levels down. I'll, I'll say this for like, there's got to be, you know, in your following on, on Instagram and, and hopefully on the podcast, there's probably other people that have experienced similar things. And, and what I, what I would just say is that like, this is something to take serious. Yeah. Um, I think that it, um, it, it sort of props up in, in different ways. Everybody's experiences differently, but like, this was, this was really a tough disease, a really tough disease to have in our line of work because of that idea that this is very relationship centric. You're oftentimes working, you're in the field, you're, you know, yeah, it's easy to run out into the woods and have a private moment in most cases, but like plenty of, plenty of, uh, field experiences in that regard <laughs> well i i and and, and i have two and yeah. and just like you know so like the urgency of those moments is just so like you know really what anxiety stricken but like i've also worked in west texas or the panhandle where you don't have anything to be discreet about and like you it's literally like i need you guys to look that way and i'm going to be back here probably making yeah. some sounds right and i need you not to worry about it like, it feels very primal when you get used to it it's very natural. I, the, the, the biggest thing that's built confidence for me in this world, and, not, and we won't linger on this because I know this is probably going to be like, this is where people turn things off, perhaps. It's, it's but, a thing uh, that me and you share, and which is yeah. so rare in, in the wildlife field, is we both struggle with stomach. Well, that's why I like, feel like such a kinship with you. Because I, I know, know man. It's, uh, we stumbled onto this topic and shared this reality. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I don't mind talking about this at all. There's got to be at least one person that I so. I bought um, a year ago, my wife let me purchase a, like, um, what you would take on like a canoe trip toilet. Yeah. One of these little like fold down jobs. And then I found on Amazon, a telephone booth style, like quick pop-up tent. So literally I can go anywhere and create a little porta potty. And, and then you buy the wag bag, the chemical bag system. Yeah, yeah. And you just like do, do whatever you need to do. And then you seal it up and you throw it in the trash. Just like any other thing yeah. that has changed my confidence about moving around the state. That's good. Like a lot of times, like it would be like, wake up, drink coffee because that helped whatever was going to happen, happen. And, and then like two hours later, then you could go. Yeah out the door uh that that you know that little setup that i've said just a built conference like, like oh you know i don't know yeah. I'm going out with a loaded gun today but i got my kit and we're good i'm nervous about traveling internationally i've gone to belize a couple of times and i make it but i want to go to australia really bad it's like i don't know if i'm gonna be able to go this year but next year probably um and i'm just i really hope i can get my stomach problems figured out and i will say i always doubted probiotics but I truly believe they are actually changing my stomach behavior. I really do yeah. think they are. You um, do pre also pro. I'm just doing probiotic. I'm not doing, doing the prebiotic pro? yet. I need to, I guess. But it's... I haven't been 
I haven't, I haven't been committed to it yet. It's been like, you know, recommendation and, and I've got to get, I got to get my stuff together. Like, like I, as much as I was criticizing my doctor, like I have leaned on the therapeutics and not done the like holistics. Right. Yeah. And I need to, I need to do the holistics. Eating right. Uh, and I've, I've done the eat, eating right thing for a long time. I eat a, a very um, stomach friendly diet and yeah. it's, it's very restrictive. You know, my diet's very bland. Anybody that knows me, it's become a personality trait at this point. I've seen it. It, um, and I'm, I'd rather starve than, than eat, you know, uh, fried chicken or something out with friends. Like I'd rather just yeah. not eat. I never eat out because restaurants rarely have stuff that I can eat, but these probiotics are actually really building my confidence up that my st- it actually can help, you know? Yeah. And it's, well, it's, the, the goal is remission and, um, you don't want to challenge remission, you know, right. like with a bunch of fried stuff, but like, yeah. I'll, I'll say this too, man, like you, you do. I am inspired by you in a lot of ways because I have seen you and you, you are, you know, you eat a very restricted diet and you're committed to it. And, yeah. and um, I'm an old hard headed guy has done things the way that he's done it for a long time. So it's been a really hard adjustment for me, but, yeah. but knowing that there are some tweaks and, and that there's kind of thoughtfulness yeah. um, and, and that there's the potential for relief from that. Like it, it is inspiring. And I see you also, you're, you're, relatively fit dude like you know you work out you got a pretty good muscle mass so you're not like super limited on your on your nutrients right so what you're doing is 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 like you know why i've taken notes (laughs) you know why i i took my diet problem so seriously it's because my stomach problems had a direct correlation to my social anxiety that that's that is the number one reason why yeah um, I used to really struggle with social anxiety and now I'm hosting a podcast. <laughs> it's really uh, the past two years have been a very, a, a big turning point for me because I, I got my stomach problems under control. So then I can, I can sleep good every night and I don't have brain fog every day in my yeah. social yeah. anxiety. Like I would literally, when I was in bad stomach flare ups, um, I would like be having a conversation like right now and I would just lose my train of thought. And then I would have an anxiety attack. Like it's crazy. I don't know how to explain it. There's, there's complex biochemistry. It's not, I know what you're talking about Not all my head. It's, it's very, it's very real how your gut is so connected to your brain. And man, when I started getting my, my, my diet, my, my diet in order, I just, it just was so apparent how much more, and I, I live more in the present moment. You know, I'm not stuck in my head it just changed my life. So that's why I, I do not ever give in. That's, I don't really have decent discipline, I think. And it's improved now with this, the food stuff, but it, I just had a lot of motivation because I, I saw how I, how much different I felt, you know, yeah. I felt so much better when I addressed my stomach problems. So there's something to this whole health idea, it, it's, you know, this holistic approach. The, the fascinating thing to me is how connected the gut is to the brain. That, that really yeah. is, I, I find to be true, but Let's talk about your aspirations for 2022. Aside from getting your health in order, <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Yeah, health. So we talked about health. That'll, yeah, we'll we got that, that out the way. That's really high. That's our. That's for the listeners. That's just. That's just uh, something me and Romy have in common, and we like to, you know. I tell you what, like when you when you go in there and you edit this stuff, like uh, maybe maybe a disclaimer and say, hey guys, if you don't want to hear about people's right. I can Fast do that. I can do this that. Mark, uh, whatever. Um, but I do think, I, I think it's important. It's an important it conversation because like, you know, yeah, we're, I, we're talking about normalizing things. I, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is something that 
I've struggled with for over a decade and has made a lot of my career incredibly difficult. And I thought I was alone. Anxiety was high. Yeah. But now we're anyway. Yeah, we're so we're talking about 2022. No herp. I don't, I'm not doing a herp big year. You got that out of the way. Yeah. I, I, I really want to, and I feel inspired by the, the lessons I've learned from the herping big year to um, maybe write a book. And, oh, and I haven't written a book yet. So I say this with the naivety of a person that's never written a book and, yeah. and never, you know, done another year long consequential project that that um, that could take a be incredible uh, time sink and, and everything right. else. And not like, you know, and nobody nobody writes a first book to make money. It's, it's about, you know, it's about mission. Passion, it's about yeah. passion. Yeah. But my, my passion is to write a book with the plot perhaps being this, this herping big year, again, to spotlight, highlight, and elevate this, this group of animals. Yeah. But, but to trick people, in, instead of going in there and thinking like, oh, another adventure, herping blog, and how-to, um, but to, to really tell the story of the Texas model of the people, places, and organizations that are, that are doing this work and to expose you know, whether it's 1D1 wildlife management valuation, the private tax valuation in Texas, or the university systems that um, largely lead what we do know about Texas herps and, and particularly like species of greatest conservation need and endangered species. Um, and, and to highlight our communicators like you, for sure, that are telling the good stories about these animals. Right. The landowners whom, whether they know it or not, <laughs> <laughs> and oftentimes it's going to be not conserving herbs. Yeah. There's not a lot of landowners out there that are like, um, I made a conscientious decision to like manage for lizards on trees. Um, they're out there. Like I'm, I'm out here doing quail stuff, dude. Right. I'm doing bird stuff, dude. But by the way, because I did that, I also did these things too. And they, they and those landowners don't even know it. I love when I originally launched my blog several years ago, and it's more, it was more that adventure, adventure blogging, you know, style of, of type of place. And I need to, I need to probably go and look in that archive and relaunch those sorts of things. There's some interesting stuff. It's cool pictures and stories, but like what I loved about that time period was that the very small audience that I had, like I had landowners reach out to me like, Hey dude, come over to my place, stay in my Airbnb for free over a weekend, bring your wife and uh, write me a little blog about like what you liked about it and, and share pictures of what you saw. Like, and I was like, I was like, this is Dude, getting this access. Is a, that's badass. What? Getting access to private land feels yeah. so it's, it, it's like different than going on any public land. Cause you're like, I'm the only naturalist out here, you know? It's cool. Yeah. But, well, you know, like I had landowners that like were directly adjacent to Colorado uh, Bend State Park. And I'm like, I love Colorado Bend State Park. Super cool place. Have you been there? Dude, I haven't. Every time I try to go, it's okay. like build up or something. Um, let, let's let make it a goal for you and I to go camping there together. Maybe a little yeah, backpacking trip or just something. But like we can do a white bass run and then go check out some of the springs like Gorman and everything. Hell yeah. But or Gorman Falls and everything. But like um, I had a landowner that like had like, I, hey, I've got 500 acres adjacent to the park. You should come out here and stay at, stay at my private ranch. I'll give you know no no charge. <laughs> all I all I ask for you is write a blog about what you saw here that I might be able to tie to my Airbnb posting. Like, okay, yeah. Did you must yeah, have a, do you have like a spreadsheet for all the uh, private land access you have? 
I know no. you got a lot. I know you got a lot. No. I I, I pride like like I tell everybody I'm this A-type personality and, and I love operating as an A-type personality, super organized and stuff. And in, in you know, in my my space, I, I kind of am that, but I also operate very well in chaos. And uh, I hate myself about like not writing down more stuff and organizing yeah. this data and information because I've probably forgotten more landowners that that invited me out than I have actually utilized. Yeah. But I I'm also, I mean, I'm just like you, man, like there's only so many weekends and I have, I have a lot of very special places that I have access to and very deep relationships with. Yeah. And I I keep going back to those wells and, and like exploring a new place is kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll get to it, but like, I still have a lot of exploring on these other places because there's so many rocks that I haven't turned over yet. It's always a hard decision. Do you explore a new place or do you, do you um, get to know a place you've been to better? You know, that's always a hard for, for me because, or, or traveling internationally, I, I have so much to see in Belize, but I'm like, next time I go international, I need to see a different country, but I'm, I don't know. I still want to do that, the yeah. traveling internationally, but I've never had the confidence to do it because of the stomach stuff, problems. But I'm 20, 2022, this, if I'm going to categorize 2022, it's like getting shit done with um you know potentially writing a book getting the blog up and going kind of like expanding the um my, my social media presence a little bit and, yeah. and reach I, which i think is important because it's, it's not um as much an ego thing you're not talking about not vanity it's not vanity it, it's actually very useful to go ahead and have a, a wider audience if you want to push a conservation message i remember early in my career you know travis leduc at yes, uc her, her college yeah yeah travis leduc is um one of the, like, to me, one of the best spoken re- uh, representatives of the herpetological culture and conservation world. And I, and I was, one time, I think Travis went and testified for, in front of like the uh, Texas Parks and Wildlife Commission. And I remember him mentioning that to me. And I said, oh my God, Travis, that is so inspiring. Like, because, you know, just like there's a Neil deGrasse Tyson and E.O. Wilson, who right. recently passed away. We have so few inspiring naturalists and, and super qualified scientists that get up and participate in the um, political process. And whether that's just being a resource and informing decision makers um, or, or otherwise just kind of like really hitting on a couple of issues like climate change or whatever, right. like we need more participating scientists. And, and unfortunately too many of our scientists are, tied to university right. and handcuffed by um, like, you're not allowed to participate. You're not allowed to be an advocate or they're, or they're not confident in what they're allowed to do in their time. Like I'm off the clock. I'm a citizen. I want to go and, and represent these causes. Right. And I think that purposefully sometimes our, our politics um, dampens down the right. voices of our scientists um, especially when they're employed by agency or funded by agency. Um, but anyway, like these voices are the ones that I'm like, man, we need more, more, more of them. You see yourself and ever, ever, uh, engaging in politics more. I know you touch, I, you touch politics a little bit. You're, uh, you're elected something or, or designated for something or. Yeah. So I've been um, a couple of things. I was recently appointed by, by Governor Greg Abbott to be a, um, a, a council member for the Texas Farm and Ranchlands Conservation Council, which oversees and administers state funds to okay. 
pursue and purchase conservation easements through the, okay. through the yeah. state land trusts. And you, you um, forget about are, that. That's, that's oh man, high honor. Like, yeah. holy oh. cow. Uh, I just got like this like super official looking like legal document that says here's the seal signed properly with a pen by, by Governor Abbott. Um, I got it upstairs. I'm trying to get it into a frame because I got to protect this thing. Like I got the bad habit of putting one of these white claws or coffee down on one of those. Right. I don't want that to happen, but I got, I got appointed by governor Abbott for that. And then I've also, um, I'm not a, I'm not a, like, um, a lot, uh, what is a registered lobbyist or anything, but I, I, I participate and I, I often go to, elected, uh, whether it's the House of Representatives or Senators offices and talk about issues. I do a lot of like, I do a lot of, of, of uh, chronic wasting disease discussions okay. lately, yeah. uh, particularly because of, of my position as the president of the Texas chapter of Wildlife Society. Okay. Yeah. Um, and we do, a, you know, we do a lot of focusing on that. I've been talking a little bit about oysters, but n- most recently, and this may have to wait until next time, unless we have a little bit more, yeah. more more opportunity. But like, I'm I'm really getting into mountain lion management in Texas. Okay, there's, which is a whole ball. There's no back. management. That's the problem. <laughs> that's that's the issue. Well, how do you that, uh, go ahead? Oh, that's, I was just saying that's yeah, yeah. the issue. How, how, no how is it in those in those uh, political environments? Do you feel very comfortable and confident, and and you're there to really make um, a meaningful difference, or is it kind of like? you know, boring and kind of underwhelming. Uh, durable versus flash is, is, is kind of a thing. Like if uh, flash is the, is like the, there's an issue like CWB or CWD, um, I'm sorry, chronic wasting disease chronic, yeah. that comes up that is at the forefront of every member's mind. And they, they're going to have to make a decision and a vote coming up. They, they need a resource and they need to like, you, I think you and I have talked about this before. Like there's a lot of, uh, I'm going to rewind just a second. There's a lot of, even in our industry, and particularly with the younger professionals and students, like we don't know who to acknowledge like in that position. We don't know who to acknowledge as the authority. Yeah. So a lot of times we look at our advisor or the first person that we ever met that spoke to us about whatever X issue. And we say, that's the person that I respect and honor and whatever they say is gospel. Yeah. And, and we don't realize that there's a whole other world out there and there's people that may or may not know a lot more than that individual Yeah, um, because we don't do the, the due diligence of like understanding the network and who the authority is. And like, you know, some people's opinions actually do trump others. Yeah. And it, so the, the point of that is that that also happens at the Capitol Okay. And, um, and so a lot of times the reason it's important to do the ego thing, which is to like put the initials after your name and the title that you have. And like, you know, when I talk about being the president of Texas Chatter Wallace, I mean, I was elected to represent my professional trade society by 900 of my peers. So when I come with those credentials to those offices, a lot of times I lay that down, that allows the member to say, shit, I got, I got, I got an authority here. Yeah. And so if I offer opinion, whether or not I'm good at it or not, they're going to give it, they're going to give me some opportunity to share a expert opinion and hopefully back it up with some good data. And in yeah. that something that their constituents can't refute easily, particularly like around chronic wasting disease. And if we're like talking about how it's, you know, likely spread by deer breeders, and right. usually nefarious, their, their readers, like there's a lot of really good ones too. Right. 
and we want we we want to um, stop the bad work that's done and in and, and honor and acknowledge the good work that's done by deer breeders. Like right. that, that's why like, I'm trying to get them. And so like, you know, I'm going to use some of the stuff that looks a lot like ego to make, make myself look, but in a more durable, longer term issue, it's about like just the relationship building. And I go in there with a lot more soft handed um, explaining the issue, who I am, I want to be here. And I'm going to show up in two weeks too, to talk more about this, if you're open to it. And hopefully like, this is the mountain lion play. Like if the mountain lion issue ever gets to the legislation, which I don't want it to, because I want, I want this issue to be addressed within our DNR, Texas Parks and Wildlife, people that can think about these things every day, as opposed to like getting briefed by <laughs> briefed about the issue and then having to make a decision by in the legislature. Right. Um, but I'll, I'll make a longer term play like that. Yeah. And that's important. Like that's, and that's where we fail also because a lot of times we can't, we can't commit to, um, durable long-term relationships with, with these people. Right. Cool deal, man. Um, let's see here. Let's do about another 10 minutes. I want to hit a few points here. Sure. Um, most memorable experience in your career. Oh man. Uh, did I already tell you that I'm meeting you in person this, this, right. <laughs> um, I I'll say this, um, you know, we, we kind of hit like uh, about social anxiety and, and challenges and traveling and stuff like that earlier for, because of our shared stomach issues. But for me coming out of, um, graduate school, I was really struggling with, um, just like generalized anxiety. Yeah. And, um, and didn't, didn't know what, what it necessarily emanated from. I just know that I had it. And like, I mean, there was a couple of times where I traveled just like South Texas to pitch on our project. And I was just like, just like having a panic attack nearly. And I've had some, and I've, I've actually had a pretty significant panic attack early on in my fatherhood. So, like, you know, being a parent and I, had, right. I remember having my two-year-old son in the back, just like losing my mind around Columbus. Fortunately, I had good friends supporting me at the time, but yeah. um, my most memorable moment won't be a point in time, will, but will be a period. A period, and, okay, yeah. Yeah, and, and that period was when I actually, you know, I talked earlier about like transitioning from being kind of like a herp guy out of grad school to like getting into birding because it was necessary because it allowed me to do more fun things and get paid and, and everything. But like when I started to get into birding, and realizing that there were so many species and like such refined niches, like this bird to there and right. this here and there. And like, like when I learned like Kalima warbler was a thing only in the Chisas, Chisas mountains and high elevations, like I want to see one. And that desire to learn, like not to like take the words on pages that I was reading and to make them real experiences with my own eyes, ears, like it, 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 it started to be so overwhelming that it overcame the anxiety, like the, yeah. the hurdle to going to big band and hiking four miles up into a mountain, which was scary. Yeah. Even as an adult white male, which not a lot of things in the world are scary for, especially in Texas, I guess, like doing this stuff was, was scary to me. And that contributed to this generalized anxiety, but like this desire to want to know this animal, to see it and to hear it started to overcome the anxiety that I felt that prevented me from moving to do that. And then with each step that I took and overcome that anxiety and realized that my metal was like, I can travel, I can camp, I can backpack, I can hike. And, and there's not a problem. And I did it. Right. 
each one of those like created a little a little chink in the armor of the anxiety to where the anxiety got tamped down to the point where now like i don't have a problem sleeping in the most remote places in texas yeah yeah i still like you want to fly me to monterey new mexico i may still have a little bit of like that's just across the board i may still have a little bit anxiety but like I started to overcome super intense and generalized anxiety. And, and I'm so proud internally, like this is of, of myself, um, of, of using nature to overcome these like mental challenges. And I, I just, so like that, that is my proudest, most memorable experience. It's not a point in space, but it's a process. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. That's, that's uh... a, that's a chapter in a book that right. I'll write some. <laughs> you know, that's good uh, stuff, um, man. The Nature Fix. I think I can't remember what her last name was. It's a book. The Nature Fix by Florence Williams, maybe, was a really good book that sort of like I was like, oh, she's writing about my experience, <laughs> like how nature fixes these yeah. things inside our heads and hearts. It's awesome, man. Let's get into some closing stuff here. You got any message, you know, anything to say to young, young wildlife professionals or people that want to get into wild, the wildlife profession? Cause I know you're the, the, uh, president of the, of the Texas chapter. So you're, you're in a mentorship role, you know, already, yeah. you know, you, and you see the importance of young people and, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm still young in my career and I, I like to mentor young people, but I'm still, it's kind of a weird phase for me. Anyway, give it, give us your, your best message to young, to young wildlife people that want to get into this stuff. Yeah. Or there's so many like cliche messages. Right. I hate the cliche stuff. Some of it's good though. It's good. Yeah. You, well, you know, you learn by teaching and all right. those other things. Like I, I think that like two things, there's a couple of things and maybe my, it may be more to more than two when I get started to ramble. But um, one of the things is that when we're, when we're students and we're graduate students and we're early career professionals, we always sort of um, have a sense of, of, of like, we need to build our egos up and, and we, right. we do that. So we, we try to seek that externally so much. Um, I think, it, I think that period of time is, is such an important time to be humble and learn. And, and we need to, we need to expand our networks and we need to introduce ourselves to mentors and people. But one of the biggest turnoffs that I've always seen, and I was guilty of this. So this is not a criticism of people. This is a criticism of Romy. It's my experience is that, we're too eager to flex nuts in front of like the people that we look up to, especially in that first opportunity. We think elevator speech. I got to tell them how smart I am. I got to show them how important I can be and in, in hopefully they'll invest in me. I think it's really important to not flex nuts and try to show how smart you are, but to show how smart of a question you can ask right. in that time, in that opportunity with someone that is, that you look up to. That makes sense. So, you know, don't worry about reciting Leopold or scientific you read names or yeah, whatever scientific names or whatever you yeah. read. Um, you it's a nervous moment and don't be scared to be that, you know, just like this is this is cool to be talking to this person. Show how smart you are by asking Good questions question. that show that you know them, you know what they've done, and you know what value they have for you. And hopefully that creates the spark relationship that you may be able to have an enduring relationship with them. That's, that's, I think, I think that's I'll add on to really, that. I'll add on to really, that. Um, I've, I've always, I talked about my social anxiety earlier and I, there are so many people I look up to. Um, and like when meeting these people in person, guys like Matt Buckingham, for example, I get really nervous or, 
you know, even like uh, my now boss, you know, John Williams. Oh, yeah. Really nervous. Uh, so I looked up to these people throughout, you know, pretty young in my early in my childhood. I'd, you know, see John's name around. And when, the only way I've been able to do well meeting um, people I look up to is just um, stay passionate. Cause I, yeah. I get really bad social anxiety, but the only way I cut through the anxiety is to uh, just let the, let the passion talk, you know? Oh my gosh. Dude, you're, you're a unique creature in this world because like, like, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't know how early in your career you really are, but you just graduated like not too long yeah. ago. Right. Yeah. So I, I think you saw our mentally so far advanced uh, <laughs> in the way that you think about things in the world. Um, and, and, it, and it translates really well. I think you yeah. present yourself really well. And, and I hope more people do. And, yeah, and you know, watch watch the way you do your stuff. Like, yeah, just l- look at Andrew. Great example of an early career professional that's going to yeah. make strides. My, my, anti, my anti-ego lifestyle hates hearing this. <laughs> well, yeah, that we, we hate hearing it. I I like hearing it, but I don't like seeking it. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Right. That, that's me. Like I, I still have an ego and it still needs to We all to have an ego. It's, we, we all do. It's just how yeah. you control it. But, but I, I like to like to think the transition from like graduate school to today is that my ego is more internally stoked than externally right. stoked. Like I don't need to seek the approval of others, although it's still really nice to hear. But I, I, I'm more, much more prefer to be proud of myself to set my own goals and standards and to live by them and develop my principles. Uh, they're not perfect and they will change. Right. And, and I love talking about them around a campfire, uh, passing around a bottle of bourbon, you yeah. know, in non COVID periods. So right. the, the I'll, I'll, I'll jump in one, one other piece of advice, um, especially for, and then I always think like advice is best given to early career p- people. When you get in the middle career, it kind of gets a little bit more specialized, but um is like you, you need to have expectations that are realistic. Um, I, I don't think that I think that in, and I'm going to use my own personal example is like I was very um, bothered by how slow the progress of my career was was in the early stages, you know, compensation wise, yeah. freedom wise, opportunity wise, recognition wise. And, and, you know, there's combinations of things there. Uh, I need to make ends meet ego, all those other things, but staying the course and realizing that even a low paying job in this field is an incredible opportunity. You may just have to work harder and you may have to work out a nine to five to make the ends meet. If this is truly what you want, you will find the way to do it. People oftentimes say, Romy, I wish I could go out and look for herps like you do and, and develop a photography habit and all these other things are like, oh, cool, man. All you got to do is give up TV and, you know, like get really strategic and forth forward thinking about like how you're going to reconcile family and, yeah. and commitments and other things. You can do it. It's not, a, it's not a problem. There's always somewhere you can go to do these things. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. So, uh, it's easy to want things. It's harder to do implement plan, plan and do. Right. And, um, and then particularly to the early career people, like I, I, I think that you have to be realistic that you have to pay your bills. You have to pay your student, your student loans. You have to pay, you know, your apartment, whatever it is, you have to pay your bills. And that may mean that you have to take a job that is not in this field. That does not preclude you from volunteering and being like what you can do with your volunteer time is so much more diverse than what you can do in, in what job you're going to have and get right. your paycheck from. You may have to wait your time 
and your timeline may, may be much longer than you ever anticipated. But if you truly want it, you'll get there. And, um, and, and my life is truly a series of oper- opportunity meets um, preparation. Uh, you know, I, I, I bumbled through. I got, I got to, and, and, and I was fortunate. I was so lucky. And it's not always going to be sunshine and rainbows. I had good bosses. I had people that invested in me. Well, hard work <laughs> leads to good luck. <laughs> it does. So um, go that path if that's truly what you want and give it a decade because that may be how long before it, before you get your break. But, you know, 10 years invested at lower income at subpar conditions while you're 20 and 30, 35 years old for a career that may turn into a vocation, one that, you know, you wake up. And, and I don't like the idea that like you go, you go to work doing a job that you were made for. You, you never work a day. No, you're working, dude. It's work. Yeah. You're working. And I, I mean, I don't want, I don't want to go to work some days and I do work that I love doing. Um, but you, you do, you do, you have a better shot of finding a vocation right. than just a, just a career making a paycheck and paying your bills. Good stuff, man. One, one last one. Uh, yeah. Give give a good good sell for conservation for 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 lay folks people that aren't into conservation you know what how do we get more people to to care about natural resources you can spit that out real quick well I think there's a there's a there's a different hook for every person right whether it, for you and me it was reptiles and amphibians some people it might be grasses and seeing cattle out there riding horses through an open landscape seeing a landscape that doesn't have a transmission wire across it right so there's going to be something that resonates with everybody yeah. my what i would implore folks to do is just is just you know when when you say romeo or, or andrew i love what you do i wish i could do it shut the fuck up <laughs> turn the tv off yeah. go outside and and drive somewhere that looks like a blank spot on a map and just get out and hopefully it's a you know publicly accessible spot and, and if you need help finding that both of us could probably help you do that oh, yeah. and just do it and, and and commit to it like don't do it one time like oh i did the you know i did the east loop at lost maples state natural area and, and now i'm done i'm going to go back to the television like commit they say like making a habit takes repeating something like five times at least yeah. right like do something like that, like commit to, I'm going to do this. I want to be a conservationist, or I at least want to um, acknowledge or have participated in, in a way that I am probably more close to understanding what they're talking about than not like, just go do something. But if it's not, if it's not that just go outside and open your eyes, there's a lot of cool shit to see. And, and like, if you just like pay attention, get your face out of your phone, take the earbuds out, get away from the people and just, open your eyes and look there's there's there will be something that that is going to spark a question or an interest and then you're going to need to go back to the computer and look it up or call yeah. hop on iNaturalist and learn yeah. about your local species and yeah yeah natural world is a uh, it's very entertaining it really is yeah i say dive into those rabbit holes like i got what was that oh, i need to go look it up take a picture draw it in your you know whatever yeah um good so. stuff man i think we uh we covered some good stuff we're i forgot to be over two hours now Oh, we could go. I, I, this has been the first time I could I could I could sit with this one for probably another two hours. I think me and you, um, we'll do a part I, two. We can go a while. We'll do a part two. So yeah, close out here, man. Really appreciate it. 
Well, I, I appreciate you on your platform let, letting us uh, visit on tummy issues because that, that's right. been something that's been important to me. And I, I, I haven't had a, a bigger audience to talk right. about it with, but I think it's important because yeah, there's got to be more people out there. So thank you. And thank you for the great work that you do communicating, uh, learning and sharing. Um, I'm because I'm not even joking as a person that's 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 pretty well read. Um, decently informed and, and super inquisitive about our Texas natural history. I learn stuff from you all the time. Man, that's a, uh, means a lot. I, I, I do, I do view you as a mentor. So that means a lot to me. <laughs> well, I view you as a peer. But, right. um, there we go. Awesome, man. All right, man. Till next time. All right, brother. Be good. Talk to yeah. you soon. All right, man. See you.